This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. My guest today is Isaac Matzner, the co-founder of Teddy. Isaac, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Alex. Really great to be here. I am at a WeWork in Sao Paulo, so highly caffeinated and ready to go. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Well, I should say uh, before we jump in that uh, in the interest of full disclosure, not only is Isaac a co-founder of a very interesting startup operating out of Brazil, focused on the insure tech and sort of gig worker benefit space, which we're going to get into. Isaac and I are also friends. Uh, We've known each other for a while now, and I am actually a small investor uh, in his company. So um, with those disclosures out of the way, Isaac, I would love if we could just start with a bit of an overview on first yourself and your background uh, and how you ended up in Sao Paulo uh, working at a startup. But um, let's start there and then we'll get into uh, what Teddy does specifically. Great. Thanks so much. Appreciate the disclosures. I don't know that I'd necessarily call us friends, more associates at this point, but we're working towards <laughs> it, right? So that's fair. Yeah, we are kind of we're kind of fighting right now, actually. So yeah. we won't bring that into the podcast, but we're we're building towards it. You know, you promised me it was tequila talks, and we're doing this. It's eleven in the morning, so I'm a little upset, but I know I do see you're wearing flannel. So hopefully, we can build towards this fintech and flannel podcast that we've we've been talking about for a while. <laughs> so. Yes. um yeah, just to clarify, it is kind of independent workers and gig workers, but more broadly than just gigs. So I do want to make sure that that's, that's clear here. Uh, but we'll get into Teddy and what they do. So a little bit about me. So I'm, I'm from Albany. I'm from upstate New York. The quick story is that I'm married to a Brazilian. I'm, I'm lucky to have a wonderful wife who I met in the States, but is from Brazil. And so we moved down here, but it's actually the second time living here. So uh, I started my career. I studied international development at McGill, worked at the World Bank. Uh, in DC. And that's when I met my wife, worked in finance in New York for a few years, did my MBA at INSEAD, which is where I met my actual co-founder. He went into the insured space. I got recruited by one of the big consulting firms to come down to Brazil, spent two years here living in Rio. It wasn't the dream that I thought it was living two blocks from the beach because you work like a consultant and the consultants in Brazil work a lot. So I would see the beach, but generally just in the taxi on the way to work. And then um, ended up moving back to the States, uh, was a partner at Core Fusion for about six years, which is a boutique strategy consulting and M&A advisor focused specifically on payments and fintech. And during the pandemic, moved back to Brazil for family reasons, but also because there's a lot of opportunity here. Had been thinking about doing a startup for a while, started talking to my co-founder, Daniel, uh, and we came up with the idea for Teddy. So really excited to be talking about it and uh, really excited to have you on board as as an advisor, as a friend, and uh, as an investor, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, clearly I am a fan of Teddy based on the fact that um, I am an advisor and investor, really excited about the vision, but would love for you to dive into that. And uh, I mean, just give us the give us the pitch. What is What is Teddy? What problem are you trying to solve? What we're looking at really is the trend towards independent work. So this idea that everybody's becoming an independent worker, everybody's becoming a consultant. This is something that I think we've seen happening for a number of years in the economy. Uh, And in Brazil in specific, there's always been a large informal space, but a number of trends have been growing. I think the pandemic really reinforced that. And I think a lot of people became more aware of it. Uh, One of the things that really bothered us during the pandemic, us being uh, me and my co-founder Daniel, was this idea of 
uh, essential workers being doctors and nurses and delivery drivers. And this idea that there were people out there kind of helping keep us safe, helping us stay protected from the virus uh, that weren't really protected. And so as we started to think about it and look into it, there's this whole space of independent workers that are out there from the person selling things on the street to independent contractors and consultants, obviously the gig economy. In Brazil, there's a lot of uh, independent professionals, so doctors and lawyers and therapists and things like that. And so in Brazil, it's about half the workforce, 45 million people that are independent. And so what we're really focused on is, is we think that independent work offers a lot of opportunities. You can make more money, you have flexibility, you have independence, obviously, but it also increases the kind of economic fragility and the risk that some of these people face. So the first principle of independent work is you make money when you work. So what happens when you can't work? And so really what we're trying to address is this idea of economic fragility of independent worker and trying to make that a little bit smoother. I think the kind of the discourse that we have in society, um, I was an economist, like I said, so labor mobility, people move to where jobs are. We have this big discussion around entrepreneurship, but the infrastructure to support that isn't really there. So we all have friends that say they'd, they'd love to do something independent. I know, Alex, you just took a risk leaving uh, Cornerstone and kind of going out on your own a little bit. Uh, and I think we all have friends that say, man, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be an entrepreneur. I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that. But I can't because I can't give up the benefits. Uh, and in 2023, that is a really dumb thing to say. Our vision for the long term is this idea of a portable benefits platform. I think there's other people that also have that vision. Um, and I can talk a little bit about kind of how we're going at that. But you know, long term, we'd love this idea of benefits belonging to individuals, not necessarily companies. But right now, what we're focused on is kind of this idea of income protection, trying to help people get through short-term disruptions to their uh, ability to work as independent workers. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I, again, I love the vision. I'm I'm biased, as I said before, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I am a good example of this. I mean, I have been writing the newsletter for three years. I only started doing it full-time about a year ago. And I had not even really considered, honestly, doing it before then because there wasn't an opportunity to do it as a full-time job with benefits, as you said, right? And I think that there's this sort of, uh, at least in the States, and I would imagine Brazil is somewhat similar, there's this divide between people who are comfortable or who are in a position in their lives where they can take more risks and then people who kind of can't. I have two young kids and a wife who stays home with them. And so I like, I like benefits. I like having a steady salary that I can count on. And it is Interesting because to your point about, you know, if you don't work, you don't get paid. I, I've experienced that with the newsletter too, right? I mean, the newsletter has to go out two times a week every week. And if it doesn't, then we you know we don't get paid, right? And so there there is definitely something very essential to that idea. And I think offering benefits and infrastructure to wrap around that makes sense. I want to dig in to Brazil and the market that you're serving specifically. I mean, we've seen a myriad of different fintech and fintech adjacent platforms that have popped up, especially over the last couple of years since the pandemic started, focused on independent workers. And in the US, that's been a bit of a trend. Not all of them have totally succeeded or broken through. Uh, RIP Catch, uh, one of my, my favorite Absolutely. benefits platforms in the US, uh, they shut down recently. But you know, I, I'd just be curious, I know you're sort of a student of this sort of broad trend, Specifically for Brazil, what are some of the things that are kind of different about Brazil in that market as it relates to that segment? I mean, you said that uh, independent workers make up a large portion of the overall population. It seems like it's a bit of a 
cultural norm to an extent to do independent work. What are some of the dynamics that make it an interesting opportunity? We've looked at a lot of models and where we're starting now. So like I said, my my co-founder started or rather was in insurance prior to starting Teddy with me. So Daniel was an executive at Zurich in Brazil and then at HDI in Brazil, comes from the insurance space. So that obviously influenced where we went in trying to focus on insurances and protections from that. But we started out, again, thinking about economic fragility and how to smooth income, thinking about lending, thinking about credit. And when we looked at the models, we saw that a lot of them didn't work in the US and elsewhere. So uh, even was a, a great inspiration virus, even doesn't even. And so does other things now. And you, you see cash advance, you see companies like Lana, which spun out of Cabify, which was trying to do lending, kind of this earned wage access type work. And we liked that, but you know, it's easy to give money away. It's hard to collect it. Uh, we heard a lot of stories about people playing one lending company off against another. So you borrow from one to lend to another. Right. And so that's kind of where we ended up with with going with insurance, which we think is a misunderstood product, but actually a really, really good product. But getting into the dynamics a little bit, I think the question you wanted to understand was kind of what makes Brazil a little bit different. You know, there is the size of the market for sure in terms of the number of people that are independent and the way that stretches across the economic spectrum from kind of low income consumers and 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 workers to higher earners. There is a big trend in Brazil, or rather there's historically really great benefits for people that have benefits. So there's this uh, legal regime called the CLT regime where if you have benefits, you get all, or if you have a, a formal job, you have all of these benefits by law. And actually in Brazil, for the average worker, the all-in cost of paying somebody is 2.2 times their salary. So oh, wow, higher than in the US. Yeah. So it's about 1.2 in the US, maybe even a little bit lower and kind of 2.2, especially for kind of lower earning full-time employees because they get all sorts of benefits. There's this thing called INSS that's kind of like a social security there's uh, food vouchers and travel vouchers and health insurance and all this other stuff. And so what you've seen is a lot of people that had benefits leaving that workforce, either by choice or by force, and ending up as independent workers and saying, hey, where are my benefits? What what happened to this? You see discourse around this fact of essential workers. So there was a law in Brazil during the pandemic that the platforms, the delivery platforms, the rideshare platforms needed to offer income protection to the workers, at least during the delivery. That has since ended, but there's discussion in the government now. Uh, there's actually some some heated discussion in the government about what to do about some of these platforms. We don't have to go into that too detailed. Um, still waiting to be seen. It's a bit hard because the market's so fragmented. It's not so easy to negotiate with you know three million independent people. There is a heavy, in part because of the way that labor works, there are also kind of reasons why companies might want to offer certain types of benefits, but not all types of benefits. So there's this dynamic around benefits in the market and this perception of benefits that people want it. And I think there's also an element, you talked about it before a little bit, also the way people think about benefits versus thinking about salary. And so food vouchers are very common here. Sometimes you you talk to people and you say, hey, you know what, if I paid you 10,000 AIs, or if I paid you 9,000 AIs a month and gave you, so here the salaries are monthly. So 10,000 AIs a month, let's say is, is a salary and that's all in and you take care of things yourself. Or I give you 9,000 AIs and I give you 1,000 AIs a month for food voucher. And so it's very common for people to go out to lunch. There's for full-time employees, there's tax benefits and things like that. But even for independent workers, for Peugeotas, there's still kind of a culture around going out to eat with your work coworkers and spending money. And if money is 
paid in salary, you think about it differently than if it's paid as a benefit. And so that's something that we also think about in terms of the insurance products we're talking about. But yeah, you can go buy it with your money. But if it's my salary, that's what I live on. And I make my budget based on my salary. So if I make $10,000 a month. That's what I'm going to pay my rent with. That's what I'm going to buy my groceries with. That's what I'm going to do everything with. And so when I go out to eat with my coworkers, I'm going to be annoyed about spending money on this or buying an insurance product or doing whatever that's coming out of my monthly budget versus if that's money that's set aside by the company that is geared towards benefits, well, then that's what I'm supposed to spend it on. And I don't think about it. I live on my 9,000 and spend that 1,000 doing other things versus I live on my 10,000. And so there's a little bit of a different mentality around those benefits as well. That's super interesting because again, even in the US, I think we have similar dynamics where it's like there are these certain things where you're like, oh yeah, that's that that comes out of this pod. So like mentally, I'm sort of separating it from this thing over here. And it's it's really interesting to hear about in Brazil the sort of richness of benefits for full-time workers because I would imagine it kind of cuts both ways, right? I mean, you have obviously independent workers who have way fewer benefits than full-time workers. And that's obviously a problem if you switch from full-time work to independent work, or you lose your job or whatever. But I would also imagine that it constrains full-time employees from really considering independent work or maybe making that jump from one to the other, even if there might be lots of other reasons or benefits to do that. You kind of don't want to give up the benefits yeah, that you yeah. have. So that's really interesting. And you you mentioned insurance is sort of a misunderstood product. And I, I want to I wanna sort of focus on that for a second. Um, in the newsletter that I write, I, I tend to talk a lot about financial products, both from like a manufacturing perspective and a distribution perspective. So manufacturing, how do you assemble the product both on like sort of a macro level, like designing the product itself, and then for individual customers, underwriting them, pricing the risk, doing all of those things. And then distribution, which is just getting the product into the customer's hands, whether that's directly or indirectly. Obviously, manufacturing and distribution are challenges for anyone who's working in financial services. They come with sort of different problems that you have to solve. When I look at the spectrum of different financial services products, though, a lot of products, there seems like some synergies between the manufacturing and distribution. Insurance has always struck me as one that's sort of wildly different between manufacturing and distribution in terms of the skill sets required, right? Manufacturing is like, in insurance at least, really overwhelmingly about like, okay, how are we going to design this product in the different tiers? How are we going to price the risk associated with those different customer segments? And it's just, it's a very like analytical sort of risk-oriented manufacturing process. But then distribution, and at least this is what we see in, in the States, and I'm assuming it's somewhat as similar in Brazil, is it's almost entirely about marketing and um, branding and like all of these sort of soft skills. And I, it's always struck me as insurance being kind of a challenging product category to build in. And as you said, it's also maybe a little bit misunderstood. So can you kind of give us a bit of a breakdown on what you've learned from Daniel, your co-founder, and what you've learned just sort of getting into the insurance space and sort of dealing with those challenges? So I think that there's a, a couple things to unpack there. And so first of all, I, I would also highlight that, you know, the pandemic did I wouldn't say help, but increased kind of awareness of insurance. So that's another trend that I think I would highlight in the market. So insurance penetration in Brazil is is terribly low for the life insurance space where we're, we're talking about, which is kind of life and income protection. Penetration is only about 10% of the population, which is, is extremely low compared to kind of more Western countries like the US and Europe, where it's, it's well above 50. And so I understand your point about kind of the manufacturing and the distribution. And so Brazil is very much a broker-led model. So by rule, 
It is intermediate. So you're supposed to have somebody that helps you as a consumer find the right products. And so a large percentage of the sales, almost all of it goes through somebody. So it might be a bank partner. It might be an independent insurance agent that's helping you do it. And that person is supposed to kind of be your representative and your sounding board. And they're supposed to help you find the best products that you can. On the other side, you're, you're pricing for individuals. And like I said, insurance penetration is super low. So it's, it's actually very hard for some of these populations to price something. And that's something that we realized in building our product is it's hard to price for independent workers the same way that it's hard to price some of these financial products for independent workers. And I think we see this in the US with people that are thin file or no file for financial services. Uh, you don't have the data you need to do those products. And so when we think about it, you know, we're actually looking at at kind of, and I know this was another question that you had wanted to discuss, going B2B initially and selling kind of a group policy to companies that work with and underwrite or, or work with and serve independent workers, because that'll allow us to gain data on some of these workers so that later on we can we can actually begin to price them. But looking at the two sides, you know, Daniel and I have have discussed this a lot and the rest of our team, I uh, do and Bianca specifically, who are, are the rest of the, the founding team right now have talked a lot about this this pricing mechanism. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about price comparison and getting the best price. And a lot of insurance companies fight over being, you know, really the best price and trying to really get the center of the dartboard for it. I'm sure you're familiar with the expression that, you know, close only counts in in, you know, horseshoes and grenades. And to some extent, I would, I would argue that insurance is similar, that what you're seeing, especially going forward, is insurance companies are having to figure out how to add value beyond just being the best priced insurance. And so that's the question is what you end up with insurance, if all you're focused on is pricing, one, you're constantly fighting with your competitors over the combined ratio and constantly fighting over price and so squeezing your margin. The other piece you have is the person that is that price sensitive is probably adverse selection. And so that's going to hurt your combined ratio even more because you're going to have more claims. You're getting the person that is really stuck on that you know, 10 cents or whatever difference between you and your competitor. And so in Brazil, you have, you know, one company is Porto Seguro, which is one of the big insurance companies that has really been one of the few companies that's been able to stand out in terms of their services beyond just the insurance that people will pay a premium because they know that this is a company that's reliable, that they're going to, you know, if your car breaks down, they're going to pick you up, that if something happens, they're there to help you and they can charge a premium. And I think what you're seeing equally on the distribution side with the role of the independent agent that's helping you as well as with the company is how do you add value? And so if you can obviously sell as the best priced product and there's something about being priced, but I think it's about being priced close enough to the other people and to the competitors. And then beyond that, really focusing on what are the value-added services that you're going to offer alongside that. So you as an insurance company, how are you making that process simple? How do you distribute quickly? How do you handle an automated claims process. So there's a lot of technology involved in that. But on the other side, how are you offering concierge services to your distribution channels? How are you as the distribution agent, be it as a, a bank or a financial planner or a broker itself, offering more value to your customers? How are you helping them beyond just, hey, this is the best price product? And at the end of the day, there are people that are super price sensitive that are going out and looking on price sites and trying to compare different prices. But insurance is also very much a trust game. And so I don't know what insurances you have, Alex, but I remember when I bought my life insurance, I went to our broker and I said, hey, can you give us some quotes on life insurance? And he gave me two or three options. 
And I picked him and I didn't do much research beyond that. And so you need to design a good product. You need to price it well, obviously more for your own sanity as a company to keep your combined ratio healthy and to be able to function. But then on the distribution side, it's about how do you find the channels that people trust and get to them in a way that that makes sense. And so some of that can be tech-based, some of that's going to be tech-enabled supporting agents, and some of that's going to be going through those agents and making sure that you're the product that they want to push. That's well, what we do here uh, on this podcast is we uh, we ramble and we go down rabbit holes, as you know very well. Um, no, that was great. And I, I think you touched on a lot of the things I was curious about. I mean, the the B2B part in particular is fascinating to me. And and as you said, there's a bit more of a connection between the distribution side and the manufacturing side and that the business has good data that can inform the underwriting and the pricing of risk that you're doing. So that that actually makes a lot of sense to me. You know, embedded insurance and embedded finance is is just just super interesting topic to me that I I continually sort of circle back on. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that you want to be putting yourself in a position where everyone in that embedded value chain, whether it's the end consumer or it's the agent or it's the employer, everyone in the value chain, you want sort of prioritizing you, right? Because to your point, the more sort of open something is, the more you can get that adverse selection, which can be really detrimental to your mix of risk and uh, value and can sort of throw your ratios off. The other thing I wanted to dig into, though, is like what the consumer reaction is. And um, I know it's early for Teddy, so this is uh, maybe more of a theoretical question or one that you only have a couple data points on right now. But I was thinking about the fact that with embedded finance, I did a consumer survey on embedded finance a while ago. It was more theoretical than it was like behavioral, right? So we weren't asking people what you've done with embedded finance because most embedded finance is still more theoretical than it is real. But we would ask, you know, okay, hypothetically, if these types of brands that you work with today offered these types of financial services products, what would be your reaction? What would you be interested in? And, you know, some things performed about as well in that survey as I thought they would, right? Like embedded lending was very popular. Embedded banking was less popular, which didn't terribly surprise me. One that did surprise me, though, was embedded insurance, because I had assumed that insurance from a consumer perspective is not something that you're always necessarily thrilled to spend a lot of time thinking about or go out and get. It's more something you feel you have to have than something that you want. And I had just sort of assumed that the embedded nature of these insurance ideas that we were throwing at consumers would really appeal to them. Like, don't go out of your way to get insurance, like, you know, get it here. What surprised me, though, was that consumers were actually kind of lukewarm on the concept, again, theoretically, in the abstract. And they said things like, well, you know, I would want to, to your point, I'd want to shop around on price a little bit, or I'd want to make sure that the one I picked was the one that I trusted the most. And so there was a little bit more of that trust and want to make sure I'm making the right decision with insurance than I honestly thought there would be. Now, these are U.S. consumers that we surveyed. So again, probably some cultural differences, but what's been your experience so far, you know, talking to some businesses about maybe trialing this, any sort of early sort of indicators you've gotten from consumers? Like what's the what's the current sort of thinking on how you appeal with a product like this to consumers where this might be a slightly different way of getting insurance than they've typically gotten in the past. So what I would talk about with embedded insurance is there's certain things that are, and and I wonder 
again, I think insurance is a bit of a misunderstood product in a lot of ways. It's, it's Insurance is not a sexy product, but it's a great product. Insurance lets you take risk, right? And so insurance is this piece of paper that promises you a payout if some eventuality occurs, but it, it can also be various other things. Insurance is a can be more than just what we talk about as an insurance policy. Insurance is kind of a great innovation in that it lets people take take risk that they wouldn't otherwise take and invest large sums of money in risky endeavors that might not bear out because they know that there's some sort of, of protection there. And I think what you see is it depends on the type of insurance as well that people are talking about. So maybe if somebody's buying life insurance or car insurance, they want to shop around about it. But if you go buy a new iPhone or Samsung phone and, you know, hey, when you're clicking through or when you're at the store, they offer you something right on the spot, that's embedded. And a lot of people buy those things, right? You're buying something online. Hey, do you want this travel insurance? Largely becoming embedded, right? You get it at the point where you buy your ticket. Hey, do you want to protect this trip? So there's different types of insurance that I think people don't even think about as insurance. I think in your head, you think about insurance, well, it's life insurance. And we talk to people about sometimes income protection, which is where we want to focus. And they don't even know that it exists. They, they talk about the problem. And this is a challenge that we are facing and that we're, we're looking to overcome. We have assumptions about how we're doing it. And that gets into our distribution model and everything else. But people understand the problem. They understand if I don't work, I don't make money. But they don't think that there's anything there to help them solve it. And they don't think of insurance as a solution because they think of insurance as, well, it's car insurance or it's life insurance. But I'm not thinking about that. I don't want to think about death. And one of the challenges we have is insurance is largely, you know, Daniel's taught me a few, a few cash phrases. Insurance is distribution. <laughs> insurance is a push product, not a pull product. But that's a big conversation that you get in insurance is how do you make insurance more of a pull product? How do you unbundle it? I think a lot of people are used to over-engineered insurance products with all sorts of coverages that don't meet the needs that they have. How do you, uh, and there's a few other, there's a bunch of startups in Brazil that, that, that we're friends with also tackling this problem on kind of how do you democratize insurance? Um, how do you make it easier? How do you un unbundle it from all the unnecessary coverages that are generally thrown in there because they'll increase the margin, but it's not something somebody wants. And so, you know, we've all seen those movies. We've all seen those stories. The insurance company is going to deny you automatically because they know that 50% of people aren't going to call back even if the claim should have been there. And that shouldn't be the discourse. The discourse should be, how does this protect me and allow me to take the risks that I want to take? And so when we talk to people and we sound them out, they understand the problem. They're not as aware that this is a potential solution and that's something we need to overcome. And then on the other side, there's an element from the company side. And again, our, our plan is to work with initially, kind of our strategy is B2B, then B2B2C, then B2C eventually maybe in the future. And the idea is to you know, allow us to engage this, this base of people and collect data so that we can do the underwriting. But it's also about kind of the distribution piece and, and helping them understand that it's there. And they work with their employers and their employers also have concerns about this. How do I offer something to value people? How do I increase, you know, a lot of platforms, a lot of these, if they're gig work or independent or freelancing, how do I get somebody to use Upwork more than use the other thing? How do I get somebody to stay on my platform more? How do I keep good talent if I'm a company that uses consultants or, or resellers? How do I protect people? How do I show them that they're valued? How do I improve the relationship I have with them? So if you think about reselling kind of MLM is really big in Brazil and that works on kind of almost consignment, right? So I give you products, you sell it, then you return and you make money on the difference between the wholesale price and the, the retail price. Well, what if you can't work that month and can't sell? I've got to charge you anyway. What if that's a bad way to have a relationship with my distribution partner? 
So how do I overcome that? And so there's a demand for solutions that solve this type of problem. And we need to help people understand that insurance can be that. And it kind of coming back to the distribution question as well, helping companies understand how this can be beneficial. And it's not supposed to just be a cost line, but it's supposed to drive productivity, drive retention, reduce turnover, because there's big costs there. And there's also big questions from a lot of platforms, um, especially when you're talking about not hiring independent workers, but serving them. So if it's a neobank or if it's some sort of information solution, we're talking to a company right now that does about a pilot that does route optimization for truckers and last mile delivery drivers about a pilot. How do you value them? And how do you also monetize that base that you have? So, you know, there's a lot of, of apps. There's a lot of programs that have 5,000 users, 10,000 users, 15,000 users, a lot of companies, especially coming out of the, the kind of bubble that we were in with VCs, there was a lot of money to go get a user base. And now everybody's trying to figure out how to monetize them. And so we also think that from that perspective, if every company needs to build their own monetization platform, it's going to be really difficult. How can we plug in there and, and be a solution through some sort of revenue share program or something like that, where this is a, a product that is valuable that people are pursuing and, and work with them on, on, on that basis. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, one of the things that you touched on there that is really interesting to me is just this idea that there's a value beyond the money that you're offering, right? And so kind of going back to what you were saying about in Brazil, like benefits are sort of seen as sort of a separate bucket of revenue and sort of income and opportunities. And, you know, I mean, that, I, I think that is a really interesting thread to pull on with employers, you know, and to say that, like, look, like, is it more effective, is it more cost effective, candidly, to try to pay all of your employees slightly more? And maybe it is, maybe it's not. Or is it actually more impactful in terms of retention, uh, employee satisfaction, their willingness to sort of choose you every day, every week over a different competing platform to offer these benefits or to offer these things that are novel or that sort of fill a different gap. And that calculus is a hard one to make because it's difficult to compare because there's sort of an emotional element that drives employees' decisions. It's not always totally rational. I mean, I probably could have made in some hypothetical alternative universe more money, you know, going fully independent and not having benefits and trying to maximize my income. But there's like a safety element to having benefits and having some of those other things that's really appealing. So yeah, testing like the boundaries of that seem really interesting. Um, I want you to take off your Teddy hat for a second. Isaac's not actually wearing a Teddy hat. I don't even know if there's Teddy merch. If there is, we should talk about that. But uh, It's coming at some point. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, and uh, maybe there is, and I just haven't gotten any yet. Um, and put on your your old uh, Core Fusion hat, which I assume you do have. I have a jacket. Okay, you have a jacket. So put on your uh, core fusion jacket. Um, is speaking more from like a fintech consultant sort of perspective, I mean, you work in embedded finance. You're doing this sort of embedded insurance play. I, I know you think broadly about just what's happening in fintech, both uh, in Brazil and the US and other markets. What's your sort of general take on embedded finance? I mean, I it's it's the thing that every VC, I think, believes deeply in their bones is going to happen. Uh, and it's something you can kind of easily draw on a whiteboard and say, it's a multi-trillion dollar opportunity, blah, blah, blah. But as we've been talking about the sort of 
art is in the details of like which products you're offering, where does it make sense and what context, what sort of uh, overall take you out on the space? How, how much do you believe in our embedded finance future that we're supposedly marching towards? So just touching a little bit on kind of some of the points that you were making before you asked this question and about kind of how people think about benefits and where they're going to work and who they're going to align with and 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 that those are things that we're still trying to test i think that you need to from that perspective always show a company that a dollar spent is more than a dollar back and so you need to show that that's the value there a lot of people will just say they want money again cuz they're not really sure how that that works and so those are are all assumptions and things that we're playing with in the pilots that we're running to try to get more more data on we don't have all the answers, like you said. We're we're early on, but we have we have ideas and we're working through. Um, hopefully, in future podcasts, if you'll if you'll have me back, we can discuss some of the answers to those and what we're actually seeing in terms of how that's driving independent worker retention because they're not employees; they're independent workers. And we've we've solved through our model some of the kind of the regulatory reasons as well around whether this person is a independent worker or whether they're an employee for you, which is is also a big risk and a big issue that that people deal with. Even in trying to offer benefits, there's a challenge of, well, if I offer him something that he's going to say that he works for me, then I'm going to get sued later on, which is a problem in a lot of countries. And so we've been working on solving that problem with um, with our legal partners at Pinedo Naptu. So have to put in a good word for them as well. But coming back to that core fusion element and my buddies there, you've had the displeasure of getting to know a couple of them, specifically Dan, who we'd be remiss if we didn't Insult a little bit on the podcast is here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, embedded finance. I, you know, I like a lot of your your article and your thinking on this, and I think embedded finance is is certainly happening. But I think it's very much like you said about the use case and about the situation. And there's ways to make things easier, but is easier always right? Right. And so, kind of, where is it good to have friction? And you wrote a piece a while back on driverless finance versus hands on the wheel finance, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I think about it a lot from from that perspective. There's people that want to control everything. And there's people, I think like you and me that are busy with our kids and our jobs that don't have time to deal with everything. You need to find the fine line between those things of where is where is it adding value and where is it actually profitable? I mean, again, coming back to lending, which we just came through this environment and it's changed dramatically in the last year and a half, you know, giving away money and getting users and TPV and all this different stuff was great. But if it's not profitable, if everybody's going to default, then they're really just pushing it off. And that's something we think about a lot in insurance because in insurance, you're pushing off the problem even further, right? So I can I can go out and underwrite millions of policies tomorrow if I want, but they will all blow up in our face and we'll all have a lot of egg on our face. And that's obviously not what we want to do. So I think the question with embedded finance is, I think it comes down to the distribution question and getting the right person at the right time in the right way. Embedded finance is that's that's kind of the idea and the dream. But we also need to just be considerate about what we're doing there and where it is, how we're meeting that consumer and what we're offering them. And if it is actually products that they want and that they need, and I'm not one for overly regulating what other people can do. I think people are independent and adults and can decide what they want. But we also need to know that these are sustainable business models and that they work. I think that's a big piece of it. And what I would say, you know, Brazil's a really impressive country for some of the fintech finance that's happened. I forget who who put it out there, but I, I remember somebody saying that the Central Bank of Brazil is probably the most successful fintech in the world. 
which I really like because you see some of the things that they're doing around payment initiator licenses, PICS. Yeah. Anybody that I imagine listening to this podcast knows what PICS is, but it's the instant payment system and how big that is has been, you know, even allowing kind of, you know, 10 years ago when I first came to Brazil, it was just ending. There was a duopoly where basically there were two acquirers in the market. There was the MasterCard acquirer and the Visa acquirer. And depending on where you went, you know, they had two machines and they would give them your card and there were the the meal ticket machines as well. And now you have, you know, hundreds of gateways operating in the market and it's kind of a question of which ones are going to combine and survive and who's going to be the leader. But this is a market that 10 years ago was completely different and, you know, Nubank and Pix and Stone and, you know, on the insurance side, companies like Peer, that Pitsy that, that weren't around before, but that have been able to emerge because the regulators are allowing for it and and encouraging embedded finance because there's such a, a significant percentage of the population that doesn't have access to a more analog version of some of these things. In emerging markets in particular, I mean, embedded finance just fascinates me because it's a more convenient way to get to that long tail. Because, you know, I mean, to your point, consumers that maybe haven't had access to traditional analog financial services, they still are using a bunch of other services, apps, platforms, uh, working with other companies, and those are potential distribution points to get to those customers as well. I corrected myself saying there, I almost said long tail and I corrected myself because it's it's in Brazil and in a lot of emerging markets, it's not a long tail. It's actually the majority of people. And I think that's something that we need to to have in mind. Just, I remember when I was at Bain uh, at private equity, doing some of the private equity projects, that we would present that Brazil was two countries. There's Canada, and then there's the rest of Brazil. And so there's this this population <laughs> of high-earning people that make $60,000 a year on average, and it's you know 20 million people or whatever it is, right, that earn this. But the population is 220 million people or, or more now. And there's this, 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 the majority of the people don't have access to what kind of is more common in the US in this analog version. And so it's not a long tail, it's a big tail that's available there and and a massive market and a massive opportunity and a massive opportunity to have impact uh, as well as make money. And that's, that's really what, what brought me down here again and what's inspiring us at Teddy. Yeah. I mean, that's well said, Brett. That is, uh, uh, that's a better analogy. I mean, to, flip around the the visual analogy it's like um not the long tail uh it's the rest of the animal that has a short tail that we've been focused on and we're talking about the entire rest of the thing so two last quick questions uh, and then i'll let you go one is just sort of generally speaking i mean i've been fascinated to be uh, a close observer of your journey so far starting teddy but just like as a fintech startup founder i know this is your your first startup I'd love for you to just sort of distill down like one lesson you've taken away from starting up a company, um, you know, finding a, a, a co-founder that you can partner with, recruiting that initial founding team. I know you're very sort of intentional about the the culture that you're trying to set, even in these very early days. What's sort of one lesson learned that you've taken away from that experience so far? A good team is really the most important thing. And it's, it's not just the people that you work with on a day-to-day basis, which we have a great team here at Teddy. We're only seven at this point, but we have a really great team. But involving people like you and some of our other advisors and some of our other supporters and kind of having that base is really important because there's lots of things you don't know, lots of things that you're learning. Even as a multiple time founder, I think you're still learning stuff. Although 
I do understand why VCs like second time founders more than the first time founders, because there's a lot of things you hadn't thought about and didn't even know you needed to do. But having people to help you go through that journey. And so I think we're a community and we need to support each other. And I I try to do that. There's other founders I talk to. There's other people in the ecosystem getting perspectives and understanding where you need to be is is really important. And so just because you're a solo founder or a pair of founders, don't, don't think you need to do everything on your own. I think that's the biggest thing is there's other people that have done this before and that you can learn from and stand on the shoulder of giants. That's That's the secret, I think. Awesome. That's a great one. Okay. Last one. And this is just more for fun because uh, you and I know each other pretty well. But one of the other things we have in common, as you mentioned earlier, is uh, we both have relatively young kids. So we'll call this uh, part of the the podcast uh, FinTech Dad Corner uh, for a second. But I mean, I'm not sure how you have the energy to have a young son at home and uh, be co-founder of a startup. I, I think I would be dead if I was trying to do both those things at the same time. But I'd love for you just in like this constant journey of like every day, there's some new interesting thing. What's a recent uh, achievement, lesson learned, observation that you want to share from the world of parenting? I have one too, but you go first. Yeah. So like most of your questions, when you ask for just one thing, there's lots of things you can say. So obviously having a great partner, uh, my wife, Veronica, helping out is is amazing. I'll be completely honest that being in Brazil makes it a little bit easier because you you do have a bit more help. But what I would say are, are there's kind of two things that I would point to. One is a, a saying that my, my cousin gave me when I had kids, but I think it also applies to your previous question about startup life. Uh, and that's it. This too shall pass. So if it's really good, don't get high on your horse. It's not going to be. And if it's really bad, don't get too down because this too shall pass. And so I think that's one thing about startup founding as well as being a parent. Just remember that this will pass. And then the other thing is, um, you know, one of our one of our angels and somebody that we're really really happy to have on board here is um, a guy named Gustavo Camargo, who's a partner at, at Bain, leads a private equity practice here in Brazil, who was my old boss, and we were talking to him about this. And so you, you can't imagine many people that will be busier than the private equity partner at at Bain sure. Consulting. Sure. And so he says, you know, he disagrees with this idea of work life balance, uh, at least in terms of kind of working and not working. And he says what you need to think about more are what are the activities that give you energy and what are the activities that drain you of energy and finding the balance between them. And so both in parenting and in work, making sure that you're kind of finding the balance between those activities that give you energy and take away energy. So obviously there's you know payroll and accounting and some of those things that I don't want to do, but making sure that I'm having these strategic discussions with the team, that I'm talking to people like you and making fun of Dan, really, really important. So there's that. And then, you know, Sometimes you need to watch a Gerard Butler movie and that's that's it, you know? What's the thing with uh, your son that you find energizing? Because I, I know there's plenty of parenting things that are draining of energy, but what's a energy restoring thing for you with him? He loves, I don't know what started. I mean, he is Brazilian, but he loves kicking balls. So like- Oh, sure. I wouldn't say playing soccer, but playing soccer with him. <laughs> he's not really playing soccer, but just like seeing him get excited to run around. He does this thing where he puts his arms behind his back and runs like Sonic the Hedgehog. We call him Sonic. Oh. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty great. So just seeing your kid happy is uh, is always energizing. Is a huge one. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I um, I had a similar experience recently where um, it's winter still in Montana, although the snow is finally melting and we're getting some warmer days. But what that means is we have a bunch of very sort of soft, slushy snow. So my uh, kids, we went outside in the front yard and they're kind of running around and they wanted me to chase them. And I I just like was like, okay, I've already been chasing you for a long time. I don't have the energy to do that. 
However, I can throw snowballs at you. And yeah. the, like the snowballs can like chase you, right? And um, they loved that. And I got to say, it's super satisfying to like be able to like have a snowball, have your like five-year-old yeah. son running away from you and just like time it up perfectly and it hits him right on the back. And then he just laughs and giggles and thinks it's the best. Like, you know, you get to a point with snowball fights where it's more acrimonious than it is fun. But this is like, oh my God, you know, try to hit me with a snowball. It's the best, you know? So th- that's been really, really satisfying lately. Yeah, he's got a little scooter that he tries to run us over with. Oh. Uh, so that's that's a lot of fun. So we run away from him. Um, but we don't need to bore your your audience with with too many dad things. We can save that for offline. We'll, we'll do more of this offline. Um, Isaac, this has been so much fun. Uh, you have definitely earned your way into future podcasts. And uh, maybe we'll even bring Dan in as well. But thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, I know you had a bunch of much smarter people on this than me, so I hope I did my job in terms of making you look smart, and that this was the uh, this was the easy interview for this podcast series. It was certainly the most fun. Uh, I feel very comfortable saying that, and uh, it's been super informative. So appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.